Thanks for downloading Cross Defense. This is great to have you here on the podcast. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Today we got two topics. Number one, happy St. Valentine's Martyrdom Week. <laughs> we had a little we had a little red to the story, I suppose, as we talk about Valentine and the Christian heroes of the martyrs. And then we take up the idea of the three estates and tell the story about how Luther found them, this foundational understanding of the way we live and Talk about a few ways that this understanding is helpful to us. Thanks for being a podcast listener. God's peace be with you. Here's the show. All right, welcome to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas, here with you for the next hour, talking about theology, cultivating that theological joy that the Lord wants us all to have. Happy St. Valentine's Week, by the way. This week, the world joins the church in celebrating the life and death of St. Valentine. Now, I don't I think this is kind of obnoxious. This is my... Terry said to me, that's my wife, she said, Hey, hey Brian, are we going to do something for, for Valentine's Day? And I said, do you want to start celebrating the saints' days? I don't think that's what she meant. St. Valentine was beaten with clubs which failed to kill him and so he had his head chopped off on february 14th 269 in rome and this day was declared <laughs> i don't know if this is thinking of this sorry i'm laughing but i was just thinking of the valentine's card that shows a picture of that the martyrdom of valentine i love you this much kind of thing apparently nobody knows why his day is connected to the affectionate love of marriage. But perhaps the two thoughts are, by the way, the two old legends are that maybe he was marrying Christians when it was forbidden to marry them under the persecution. It was under, what, uh, Galatius, no, that was the Pope that declared, Claudius II or something, who was persecuting the Christians and he wouldn't let the Christians get married so they they had to be conscripted as soldiers and 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 Valentine was marrying them. The other thought is he wrote a letter from prison before he died, and it said, "You're Valentine," and somehow that 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 caught on. Who knows why the uh, Valentines are connected with the heart and the uh, idea of romance and affection? But it's good for us. I don't know why. I can't I can't tell you why, but it seems to me wise for us Christians living in these days to remember the martyrs. I mean. To remember that the Christians that went before us gave everything uh, for their confession of faith. That, in fact, you know, it's how wild is it that the word martyr is a normal Greek word? It just means witness. Like if you were called to court to to give a witness or a an eyewitness to tell what you saw when some guy punched another guy or someone stole something from someone's shop or whatever, if you saw it, you'd be called to testify. As a witness, you'd be a martyr. But when we think of martyrs, we think of those that died for the faith. And why? Because they would say that I'm a Christian. I picked up a book a few weeks back. I was traveling through, I think it was Minneapolis. Is Minneapolis the airport that has this really great used bookstore in it? I think that's it. There was a book in there. And it was just called The Martyrs. That's pretty good. I should probably get that. After all, I wrote a book called A Martyr's Faith for a Faithless World by CPH. By the way, you can find that. And I tell some stories of these martyrs because this idea of knowing the stories of the martyrs goes back a while for me. I mean, th this kind of growing thought that we, we can't forget about these guys. 
and and maybe because we need heroes and you know when you look just look around you see this fantastic dearth of heroes if we believe what we say we do about the history of the world then we confess that humanity is not getting better but getting worse and we are not getting stronger but weaker and our constitution is not growing more lively but less and so we we look back in history and we see these great men and and we have these great heroes and especially this we know that the christians always had these heroes who were the martyrs and it's good for us christians living in these days to have these to have these heroes they're not just and it's not just after the bible it's in the bible too i mean saint stephen we have the holy innocence i mean we we have the killer jeremiah was a was a martyr we have the, the martyrs in the book of Acts, we, James was killed for confessing the faith. This is how it goes to be a Christian. In fact, all the apostles but one ended up dying for the faith. Anyhow, that, that tradition continued. And these are always the Christian heroes, the people that we looked up to, those who forsake everything, who, who give up everything, even their life, because they named Christ. And so I picked up this book on the martyrs. And it's it's an amazing text that just goes through some of these stories and kind of puts them together, and uh, and, and there's a but I, I I was reading on the airplane and there's a thing that I noticed, oh probably, fifteen stories into it, and that is that almost every one of these martyrs, as they were standing there before the judge, said the same thing. They spoke the same exact words. Now, I don't know if this was an artistic thing done by the person that that wrote the stories. But they all stood before the before the proconsul or before the, the prelate or the prefect or whoever was judging the case, the emperor or the judge. And when they were asked to renounce Christ, when they were asked to deny the Lord Jesus, when they were asked to offer a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord or Lord Caesar, they all said this. They all said, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. Perhaps most famous of all was Perpetua, who was in prison, and she had just had a baby. She was nursing her infant baby, and her father kept coming to her with her baby, trying to convince her to renounce Christ and to, to get out of prison. They'd let him go. As soon as you said, Lord Caesar, they'd let him go. So Perpetua's father comes to her in prison and says, hey, you should not be saying you're a Christian because it's going to cause all sorts of trouble. Don't you love me? Don't you love your baby? Don't you love your mom? Don't you love your husband? Don't you love this life? Don't... Come on, quit and, and Perpetua wasn't even baptized yet. She was, I think she was baptized in prison. She was part of the confirmation class. But Perpetua said to her father, Father, you see that water, that jar that's there in the corner? Yeah, I see it. He says, could you call that anything but a water jar? No, it's a water jar. What's your point? And Perpetua said, neither can you call me anything else than what I am. I am a Christian. Hmm. <laughs> Now, this is, reminds me of what Peter says. First Peter 4, I think this is verse 16 or 15. He says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. I am a Christian. <laughs> glorify God in that name. Unashamedly, we say it. I am a Christian, and even if it means getting beaten by clubs and losing our heads like St. Valentine. That's what we say. I am a Christian. 
And that, by the way, sets us to live in this world differently. I was just reading through Colossians. I'm now, this is not what we're going to talk about today. I'm just, sorry, I'm just kind of talking. I'll in a minute, I'll tell you what I want to talk about. But anyway, so Paul is talking about what it means to be a Christian, and he writes this letter to the Colossians. It's a beautiful letter. And he talks about how Christ is head of all things. He's head of creation, head of the new creation. He talks about Paul's suffering and how he's, how he's joyful in his suffering. And then he talks about the problems that they're facing, the, the theological false doctrine, which was tempting them. That's at the end of chapter 2. And he gets into this and he says, Now, you are just like Jesus is the head over all these new things. You are part of these new things. You are part of this new life. And he says, and it extends even into our, it extends even into our homes. It extends even into our marriages. It extends even into our fa into our families, into being father and child and master and so forth. And so he gets to the table of duties. That's where one of these places where Paul will talk about how it is that we live together in this life. And he says this. I'm, so I'm starting in Colossians 3, verse 18. And I want you to notice a pattern. I'll try to emphasize it in my reading. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey, everything, uh, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people-pleasers, people-pleasers, <laughs> people-pleasers, <laughs> people-pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, and not as for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now that word Lord, is there's so much in it. But that's the word that the martyrs were dying for. Say Caesar is Lord. They say, no, Jesus is Lord. I'm a Christian. I belong to him. I'm a Christian. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And every structure in our lives now comes under the lordship of Jesus. If you're a, if you're a wife, you're, you're serving your, uh, your, your subject. What is the word here? It says, wife, submit. You're, you're under the order of your husbands as to the Lord. Children, your parents, as to the Lord. Servants, as to the Lord. All people, as to the Lord. So that the husband is the head of the house. The Lord is the head of the house. Who puts the husband there? The parents are not the head of the children. The Lord is the head of the children who puts the parents there. And the wife and the children can receive their husband and their parents as a gift from the Lord. The bond servants can receive their master as a gift from the Lord. The Lord stands over these things. It's really, really quite wonderful that this confession that Jesus is Lord puts Jesus over everything. We were meditating on it last week, how, you know, there's basically two human philosophies, the Epicurean and the Stoics, and the Epicureans say... Pleasure's good, pain's bad. Stoics say, pain's good, pleasure's bad. Christians say, pleasure's good, pain's good. Because Jesus is Lord. He's over both of them, and he gives us all of it. This is so fantastic. Now, I do not know if St. Valentine, martyr, confessed that he is a Christian. Apparently, when he was sent to prison, the emperor kind of liked him. But then Valentine, uh, Valentine was trying to convert him and cause him to become a Christian, and he got fed up with it, so he sent him off to be clubbed to death. There is no record of him saying, I'm a Christian, but that is why he died. And that, dear friends, is how we live and how we die. Now imagine it, that these guys, Valentine and all these others, Perpetua, that these are our, these are our Christian heroes. 
These are the people we looked up to when we say, hey, what, what is our life going to be like? What does our life in Christ look like? That we look at the martyrs and we say, this is what it looks like. Martin Luther said this crazy thing. I've been now meditating on this for a couple of years now. Martin Luther was talking about the burning of Brother Henry. Henry was a student of his. He was a priest who came down to Wittenberg. He, he, the gospel got a hold of him, and he went back, and he was preaching and had a nice little church there. And these people from a, a little village across the way called him over to preach there and bring the Reformation to his town. And so he said, all right. He went over there, and they arrested him, and they wouldn't let him preach. They knew that if he started preaching, no one could contradict him. They wouldn't let him preach. They arrested him. They dragged him through the night behind a horse on the frozen road and cut up his feet and they were trying to burn him to death, but they couldn't get the fire lit, so they ended up clubbing him to death while he was choking, on, while he hung on a ladder. It's kind of brutal. And Luther's writing a letter to the congregation that was mourning the death of their pastor. Now, this is during the Reformation, so Valentinius died, you know, a couple thousand years ago. But this guy, Brother Henry, that was not that long ago, 500 years. Anyway, Luther writes a letter describing what happened, how he died, and he he does an exposition of Psalm 12, I think, to comfort them. And he, he's saying a few things about what it means, how they should react to this, how the church shouldn't be angry at the people who, who killed their pastor. That's not the Christian way to be angry at our enemies, but to pray for them and to bless them and to know that the Lord uses these kinds of things. And in the midst of all of this, Luther says that in our day, the true pattern of the Christian life has been restored. And he's talking about Henry. I mean, he's talking about this martyr that martyred him. Can you, now, just just sit with me. Now, we don't have to believe everything that Luther said, like we believe the Bible. That's not, He's not authoritative. But, but we want to let him be a teacher of the church. And he invites us to meditate on this crazy thing, that the, the true pattern, the true way a Christian life looks, is the life of suffering. It's the life of, of martyrdom. It's the life of affliction. It's the life of being cast out from this world. It's the off-scouring of the world, like Jesus said. In this world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer, because I've overcome the world. Imagine. <laughs> now, if the Lord doesn't hand us over to martyrdom, it doesn't mean we're some sort of lesser... We rejoice in that. If the Lord gives us a good life, we rejoice in it. But if the Lord sends us to this kind of trouble... Take they our life and goods and fame and child and wife. Let these be gone, we say. This is what it means to be a Christian. Jesus is Lord, and we are Christians. So remember that on Valentine's Day. And, and may the Lord give you joy in knowing that, it, that life is yours and eternal life is yours. And that he's the one, if you're married, who gives your spouse to you. <laughs> He's the one who says that two shall become one flesh. Oh, man, there's a whole other thing we should probably talk about. Marriage, how, how marriage is not two people giving themselves to each other. We're not authorized to give ourselves away, but the Lord Jesus gives us one to another, and he's the one who makes the two into one flesh and declares us to be husband and wife. That's, that's a joy. So that we can look at, you can look at your spouse when you, when you take your husband or your wife out for a fancy dinner this weekend. And you can sit across the table from them and you can look them in the eye and you can say, you can know in your heart, you could say it if you want, but you can know in your heart that you are a gift to me from Jesus who gave himself to die for me and who knows how to give good gifts. 
Now that, that is a happy Valentine's Day. Hey, today I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about the discovery of the three estates, and if we have time, I want to talk about joy and suffering. Those are the topics, but we're, I'm getting the warnings already that we're time for... I just can't believe we're t- ready for the first break. So let's go to the break now. Let's get this break over with. It'll be a quick one, and then we'll come back and we'll take up the topic of the discovery of the three estates. It's a particular genius of the Reformation that helps us understand the world, ourselves, our place in it, helps us to understand the news and all the craziness that's coming at us every day from every different angle. So we'll talk about that and unfold that story next. You're listening to Cross Defense, Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, your host, and we'll be right back. This is Pastor Mark Azil, the LCMS Director of Campus Ministry and the Chancellor of LCMSU, inviting you to join us right here on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the Student Union. If you can't make it, Student Union is always available as a podcast at kfuo.org. Learn more about LCMSU at lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus. We'll help. Wednesday afternoon at 2 on KFUO. Did you know that for over 40 years, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries with low-cost loans and resources? This is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Because of faithful investors like you, we've been able to help church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations. To learn how you can get involved, call 800-843-8233. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. Each weekday on the Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah, we share and discuss stories of Living Boldly Lutheran. Including missionary updates, mercy work, events and topics applicable to your daily vocations, and maybe some fresh dark roast. The Coffee Hour weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO, underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. like Pavlog's dog. That music starts playing and I start talking. Uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, by the way, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Death Lutheran Churches here in Austin, Texas, broadcasting today live from the Tower Studio atop St. Paul Lutheran Church here on Red River Street in Austin, Texas. Come and visit, by the way, when you're hanging around Austin. It's great. St. Paul Lutheran Church and barbecue. That sounds like a good vacation, actually. You should theme that. Anyhow, we just were talking about St. Valentine's Happy St. Valentine's Day week. Now I yeah, since I told you guys to take your spouses out, I better I better get those plans underway. I want to talk to you though today about the three estates. I've been meditating on this idea for some time and I think it's so helpful, so helpful. Because you know one of the okay, one of the things that happens if we're 
trying to engage in this life in a thoughtful way. Uh, the information that comes at us all the time comes so fast that it's hard to sort of filter it and figure out what's going on. I mean, we, we got the news, and you have the analysis of the news, and, and that just keeps coming faster and faster. And it, and it changes, and, and it's in these weird kind of cycles. So, you know, I mean, remember how, like five minutes ago, everyone was constantly talking about people coming across the border. That was like the whole conversation. And then it, it shifts, and then it's everything's about impeachment, and then it shifts, and everything's about... I suppose now we have the coronavirus uh, break uh, outbreak, and it'll shift. In, and there's just the things that people are interested in shift around so fast, and it's and it seems like these shifts are happening faster and faster because you have the 24-hour news stations, you got t- cable news. You got, that's a lot of time to sit. That people sit there and talk about the news, and so you sort of saturate the conversation, and then it's time to move on to the next one. It's wild. And how do you filter it all? How do you how do you keep it all straight? How do you understand your place in it? And this. How are we supposed to how are we supposed to wrestle with the fact that just about well let's say this at least a, a lot most of the news that we hear about is is either tragedy or politics and for whatever reason those are the things that rise to the sort of fickle attention of people so you very rarely i mean i suppose it's because of the very nature of news is you have to talk about something that's changed so you couldn't have a news show about theology. I, I, I think about this quite a bit because, you know, I'm talking about something different each time we come on. But in some ways, the stuff that we talk about here on cross defense is not new. And, and hopefully that means it's also not old. It never gets old. It's just it's what is because it's what's true. It's what God has said and it stands. But but there's this way that our attention is always focused on the things that are that are new I suppose it's, you know, if you, if you and I just stand and are looking out the window at a forest, the things that we notice are not, are not the things that are staying the same, but the things that are moving around, the birds and the leopards and whatever else is, is moving around. And, and so our attention is always drawn, drawn to the things not that stay the same, but always to the things that, that change. Now, that's dangerous for us because the most important things in life are the things that don't change. I mean, the most important things for us to to know and to see are the things that, that stick around. For example, the nature of humanity. That hasn't changed since the fall, and it'll be the same until Jesus comes back. Or even these institutions of God, like marriage, that doesn't change. We could try to change it and monkey around with it, but it, it is what it is because God has instituted it. It doesn't change. It stays the same. God's institution of family, for example, it stays the same. We can, again, monkey around with it or try to destroy it, but it stands. It'll be there. And the church also. It stays the same. At least it ought to stay the same. And we, we should have churches where, you know, if Adam and Eve were raised like Lazarus and they came to visit Austin, Texas, they'd come to St. Paul Lutheran Church and say, ah, there's a church. It's same. Same as it always is. Some things are not supposed to change. The most important things are not supposed to change. And this takes us to the discussion of the three estates. Because... The understanding of the three estates, and I'll tell you what the estates are and what I'm talking about in just a minute, but the, but one of the things about the three estates is, is to recognize that we live in a world of established things. We live in a world of permanent things. We live, in other words, in a world that has been instituted by God and that is filled with institutions that God has put in place. And there's three of them. They're the church 
and the family and the state. And those three estates, those three institutions, those three governments, sometimes Luther calls them the three realms, those stand. Now, now, now this is a particular genius of the Lutheran Reformation, but it's often missed because whenever people talk about, like, what, hey, what was Martin Luther's politics? What was his political insight? For whatever reason, they almost always go to the idea of the two kingdoms. You've heard of this, the two kingdom doctrines, the, the right hand of God and the left hand of God, and that's fine. I mean, this is part of what we understand. Jesus, they, remember how on Holy Tuesday they brought a coin to Jesus? Oh, this is so great. So let's tell the story. It's, Holy, it's Tuesday of Holy Week. Jesus and the disciples are staying in Bethany, which is on the other side of the Mount of Olives. So you got to think of, so, so Jerusalem is on Mount Zion. It's on this kind of little mountain kind of juts out there like a ship's prow. And uh, and the, the walls are around the city, and the temple's kind of on the on the northeast side of the city in those days. And you have the city of David to the south. And, and then you go down. If you, go, if you travel from Jerusalem to the east, you go down through the Kidron Valley. The, brook, the Kidron Brook is there. And you go up the side of the Mount of Olives. To, and the Mount of Olives is above Mount Zion, so it's a higher little mountain range. I mean, little hill there. You walk up it, and you over the Mount of Olives, and then down to the on the east sloping east side of the Mount of Olives is the village of Bethany. Jesus is staying there with his disciples, probably in the house of Mary and Martha, Martha and Lazarus, and he's going back and forth to Jerusalem every day. So Holy Tuesday, he goes back into town. He passes the withered fig tree that he cursed the day before, and the disciples were like, "Wow, look, a tree's not doing so hot." And they go into Jerusalem, and and Jesus goes into the courts of the temple, and he's teaching there. And they are challenging him. This is the last public teaching of Jesus. And the temple the courtyard was a lively place, this big, sprawling place. And there was little porticos where you could have classes, or they could set up little shops and stuff like that if you were authorized. And There's a bunch of activity that was happening around there. It was, a, it was the square of Jerusalem in some ways. And... So Jesus is in there, and he's teaching, and the Pharisees are coming to challenge him, and they bring these three challenges. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus gives the glorious answer. <laughs> he says, this is so great. He says, he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second's like it, love your neighbors yourself. They go, he they kind of goes away dumbfounded how wise Jesus is. And then, they, and then they try to trick him. The Sadducees try to trick him with this question. Which is, uh, they tell the story of this lady who had seven brothers, all her husbands, and all died. Which is just kind of silly. I mean, this kind of shows you what the conversation was like in the temple. And, but the Sadducees had invented this made-up story because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And, and so they said, well, look how ridiculous the resurrection is. Imagine this lady who has these seven brothers. Now, I, I like to imagine the seventh brother who's, hey, are you going <laughs> to... You're going you're gonna to marry me now? And he's, he's just finishing up the funeral of his sixth brother who married this lady. Anyhow, Jesus says, look, you're neither, you don't know the power of God. You, uh, in, the, in the resurrection, you're neither married nor given in marriage, but you're like the angels of God. In other words, in the, in, in the resurrection, there's no children. That's the point there. And, uh, and so because there's no children, the, the chief institution of marriage is no longer necessary. But then they come and try to trick Jesus with the coin question. They say, who should we pay taxes to? Now, this is a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of question, because if Jesus says, well, you should pay taxes to Caesar, 
then they would say, what kind of Messiah are you? The Messiah is supposed to overthrow the, the Romans and, and bring about the kingdom of God. <laughs> or if he says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then they just call for the guards and have him arrested as a, as a re rebel, seditious. This, this is the trick. And Jesus says to them, show me the coin. <laughs> now, they weren't supposed to have those coins in the temple. That's why they, that's why the money changers were. I mean, maybe they had the coins because Jesus had overturned the money changer the day before. <laughs> so they couldn't change the money that day. But probably not. Remember, Luke tells us the Pharisees were lovers of money. They were changing everybody else's money, but they had all the Caesar coins they needed in their pockets, walking, jingling as they walked around the temple. Show me the coin. Here, I've got one. And Jesus says, whose image is it? And they say Caesar's. And he says, well, give to Caesar what belongs to him. Give to God what belongs to him. So where's the image of Caesar? Well, the image of Caesar is on the money, but where's the image of God? Even though it's lost, it still is echoing in our own humanity. <laughs> it's fantastic. So, And, they, let, and they, they couldn't say anything else. And so then Jesus comes to them with his riddle and says, and says, whose son is the Messiah, David's? And he says, why does David call him Lord? And he quotes Psalm 110, Jesus' favorite psalm. It's great. But anyway, the point is that Jesus says, give to God what's God and give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And from that, we, uh, we develop this understanding of the two kingdoms, the right-hand kingdom of God and the left-hand kingdom of God, that God rules in the world through power, his left-hand kingdom, and he rules in the church through his word, the right-hand kingdom. And that's fine, and it's healthy, and it's good for us to reflect on. But there's something even more important, more important than the authority or how God rules, and that is the place where he rules. And in that conversation, we talk about the three estates. Now, if you were to just go to Google and Google three estates, I should try this because I haven't done it lately because I've been writing a bunch about the three estates, hoping that I'll catch people Googling for it. But generally, if you go and Google three estates, you start to see all this stuff about the French Revolution. And you realize that what was happening is the French Revolution was a rebellion against the order of the Catholic Church from the Middle Ages. And the, and the discussion of the three estates uh, coming before the French Revolution is normally like this, and it's helpful. The three estates were understood to be those who pray, those who fight, and those who work. Those who pray, that was the priests and the monks, especially the monks. Those who fight, that was the king and the nobility. And those who worked, that was the peasants who had their home and farms and little little studios where they were building stuff and things like this. Now, now this is true not only in pre-French um, pre Revolution France, it's also true in pre-Reformation Germany. In fact, this is in some ways an oversimplification of the basic structure of the world in the Middle Ages, the Western world in the Middle Ages. There were these three estates, those who pray, those who work, those who fight. And here's the point. You were in one or the other of them. You were not in two estates or in three estates. You were in one. In fact, to join those who pray, look what you had to do. You had to take a threefold vow. The monastic vow was the vow of Poverty, obedience, poverty, chastity, and obedience. Poverty took you out of the estate of those who fight, the nobility. Chastity took you out of the estate of those who work, that is, the family. And obedience took you out of both and put you under the obedience to the, 
to the rule and to the person ruling the monastery. You know, we, we hear the vow of obedience, we say, oh, that's something, but it's not, it's a, a obedience to a particular thing. It's obedience to the person who is going to be your ecclesiastical supervisor in the monastery. In other words, when Luther went and took his vow of obedience, he was vowing to not be obedient to his father and his mother. He was vowing not to obedient, if necessary, to his prince, but rather to be obedient to the superior in his order. So the monastic vows were an example of how you were only in one estate or another. Now, the chief of these estates, especially in pre-Reformation Germany, was those who pray, the estate of the monastery. I mean, they were the big time. This is what propped up society, because this is where all of the holiness was being generated to save the world. In fact, the monks considered themselves to be doing works of what were called supererogation. Uh, they, were, they were the superworks, the hyperworks. In other words, I could do enough good works that I would cover not only my own sin and my own failure and my own mistakes, but I would do enough good works that I can actually make up for your sins. <laughs> Some of my merit would go, the extra abundant merit would go to the treasury of merit, and that would be applied to the sacramental life of the church to those sinners who needed it. Imagine it. It's like, <laughs> it's like you're doing so much work that you have so much money that the, the bank can't hold all your money, so that it has to go into a different treasury so that someone else can get it. That was a theological idea. So that the monks were the ones generating all of these merits to to save the to save the culture. Now, when the gospel came clear for Luther, which is a glorious story, and we've heard it before, it's so fantastic. He's sitting there in the tower studying Romans, and all of a sudden it's clear that the righteousness of God comes not by doing but by believing. Oh, what a story. Well, when when that comes clear, one of the consequences of it is that the the whole theological underpinning of the monasteries simply collapses. If the monastery is not a like a factory generating good works which are necessary to get us into heaven, then the whole economy collapses. The whole need, the whole energy, the whole support of this whole monastic structure simply crumbles. And what was happening is that all those other estates, which were being propped up by the monastery, and especially by the Catholic Church in Rome, they all start to crumble as well. That everything is radically shifting around. And as these three things collapse, you got a picture. Can you, can you imagine? you got a, you got a castle, and you have a cathedral, and you have a farm. And there's these huge walls between them. Those are the three estates, and everyone's in one or the other or the other. And, and, and they're standing there, all three, and they're leaning against each other. And when the cathedral collapses, so does the castle, and so does the house. And what they realize is that these three things had been propped up on the foundation of something else. I, don't, I, I, wish, I, could, I wish I could describe it more clearly so that you could see it because I can see it so clearly in my imagination it's it's like it's like there's this foundation of this beautiful city and it's been demolished and in its place has built these three sort of haphazard crumbly sort of structures and an earthquake comes and it 
and it shakes the place so that these three sort of half-hearted things crumble to the ground. But what happens is you're able then to see the foundation and to see what was what was meant to be by the great architect who had built the original place. And and Luther sees it, and he sees that there's three estates, and these estates are not separate from one another. These institutions are not apart from one another. But that these institutions are all bound up together, and these three institutions are the, the family, the home, and the church, the preaching office, and the state. And here's the, here's the genius of it. It's not that you belong to one or the other, but that each one of us rightly belongs in all three. So it's not like I'm either those who pray or those who work or those who fight, but I am, as a human being, I am part of the family and I'm part of the church, and I'm part of the state, I should say. As a human being, I'm part of the family, I'm part of the state, and by baptism, I'm also part of the church that all of us have a place in all three of these estates. And from that, Luther is going to begin to build up the doctrine of vocation. Oh, I hope, I hope you can see it like I can see it, because just getting that is so helpful for when we engage with the world and the things that are happening around us. i gotta, I got to unfold this a little bit more. We've got to take another quick break, and we'll do that now, and then we'll be back to unfold some of the implications of this idea of the three estates. So stick with me. Short break. We're coming right back. You're listening to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson, host of Moments of Assurance. Jesus said, if anyone enters by me, he shall be saved. You can help us continue to get that message out around the globe while there's still time. One way is to become a church or organization of the week. For a gift of just $595, your church will receive 35 30-second announcements during the week of your choice, identifying your church as well as upcoming events and happenings. And your pastor or a representative from your church, they may record those announcements or we can produce them ourselves either way. In addition, your pastor or representative will have the opportunity to be on one of KFUO's programs. It's a wonderful way to expand your mission outreach and to help KFUO Radio to do the same. For further information, call me, Mark, at 314-996-1520 or mark.hawkinson at kfuo.org. On this show, I talked about uh, Valentine, the martyr. In the book, A Martyr's Faith for a Faithless World, I talk about a few of the other martyrs and present them to us as heroes. If you're interested in that, you can pick that book up from CPH. You can find information at my website, wolfmuller.co. There's a book there to press press the link, and you can find out how to order the book. And if you do read it or if you have read it, I'd love to hear what you think about it and get that feedback. So A Martyr's Faith for a Faithless World, published in 2019 by Concordia Publishing House. Uh, let me know what you think. Welcome back to Crossfence. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Death Lutheran Churches here in Austin, Texas. Host, we've got a few more minutes. We're talking about the threes. What did we talk about? We started talking about St. Valentine's Day. 
Then we started talking about the three estates, and we talked about I, – I put before you this picture. I hope you can see it, that, that there was these three silos that were considered to be the three estates in the Middle Ages, and you were, you, they, were divide, they were dividing people up. You were part of one or the other or the other. But part of those who pray, those who work, those who fight. Now, they were interacting with each other, but you had your certain place in society determined by these three estates, and this all collapses. Under the discovery of the gospel, by the way, I mean, the, the, the first to collapse is the monastery because it's useless, and then the other three, the other two totter and fall. And, and, and one, of the big, mm, one of the big things of the Reformation, one of the big fights, not fight, one of the big projects, let's call it that, one of the big projects of the Protestant Reformation is how do you order society according to God when when the medieval Catholic Roman Catholic shaped society has collapsed? That's a project, by the way, that Luther is undergoing in the large chasm. We, we we often miss it. If you've if you're Lutheran and you've if you're not Lutheran, this is the large catechism is is one of the great places to start. And if you are a Lutheran and, and you haven't read much Luther, I, I found this to, to my utter astonishment that, that as, I, as I minister and pastor in the Lutheran church, that, that most Lutherans have not read any Luther at all aside from the small catechism and that they're not even sure what parts of the small catechism Luther wrote and which part he, parts he didn't. Now that is something because this guy Luther is helpful to us now remember our rule luther is helpful only if he points us to christ that's the major thesis the premise and then the minor premise luther points us to christ so the conclusion luther is helpful to us but 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 that most people have not read luther now if you if that's you and you're sitting here kind of embarrassed you don't want to look at the person that you're that you're sitting next to listening to the show with because you're blushing, because you're ashamed, because you've never read Luther, and how dare you? Well, here I'll give you some advice. The best place to start, I think, is to pick up the large catechism. You can find it for free online. I got, I got copies that we're republishing on the Everyone's Luther for five bucks. You can pick the thing up. It's a couple hundred pages, maybe 160 pages, and read it. It is just glorious. And he spends all this time, Luther, on the Ten Commandments. And why? Because he's using the Ten Commandments to, to show how society should have shape, to show what life in this world ought to look like. Because these institutions have collapsed, and what has now become clear is that in the rubble of the collapse of this propped-up artificial society, uh, he's able to see these, the, the, the outlines of these three ancient estates, which are the family, the church, and the state. Now... Now, where did they come from? What are they for? Why do we have them, etc.? We can kind of run through this pretty quickly. The church was established by God in the garden, especially when he told Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit. And this is where people would go to trust God's word. That's why the church is there, so that we would hear the word of God and in hearing have life. So that the church is instituted for the purpose of hearing God's word for the sake of eternal life. The family is also instituted in the garden when the Lord puts Adam to sleep and he pulls a rib from his side and he takes the rib and crafts Eve and wakes Adam up and gives Adam and Eve one to another. He says the two shall become one. In fact, the Lord says, so a man shall leave his father and his mother. You have to think that Adam and Eve are saying, what's a father? 
That's like that old joke, you know, when you find two people frozen in an iceberg and and the only thing that's different about them is neither one has a belly button. Who are they? It's Adam and Eve. <laughs> yeah, remember that riddle? That's in case Adam and Eve didn't have a father. Fa a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Beautiful. Be fruitful and multiply. That's the institute. By God's word, that's the institution of marriage in the Garden of Eden. And the institution of marriage is is what creates the institution of the family, the estate of the family, which is for the purpose of earthly life. So earthly, new earthly life comes forth out of the gift of marriage and sustained earthly life comes forward out of family. When we have earthly, this is a, just a way to, to think about it. When we, if we have eternal life problems, then the, the place we need to go is church. And if we have, if we have, uh, uh, if we have earthly life problems, then the place that we need to look to is the family. And then we have the third estate, which should be always rightly the third estate. I, don't, I never know which to list first, the family or the church. Sometimes we should talk first about the church. Sometimes we should talk first about the family. They kind of switch in importance depending on the conversation. But third is always, always in last place, is the state. Now, the estate of the state or the estate of government is instituted by God in conjunction with the fall. Now, some people have, I, I used to say that it was created after the fall, and it is the one institution created after the fall, and I've gotten a little bit of kickback because people have said that, no, there would have been a state before the fall, and I suppose that's true, but chiefly the state really comes into view after the fall into sin, and it has this purpose. You got to listen carefully. I normally would draw this on the board. It's easier to see than to hear. So you got to listen carefully to this. That the state is is instituted by God for the purpose of bringing about little deaths to prevent big deaths. So the the church gives eternal life, the family gives temporal life, and the state gives little deaths. <laughs> now it's in service to life. But the, but the state cannot create life, nor can the state sustain life, much as it might boast to do it. But what the state is tasked with by God is bringing about little deaths to prevent bigger deaths. That's why the state bears the authority of the sword. The sword is a killing instrument. The sword is a cutting, slashing instrument. In other words, the state is essentially destructive. But it's destruct. It's supposed to be destructive in service to life. So when someone, for example, is going around robbing people's houses, that person is taken and locked up in prison. So the state takes away their life, takes away their freedom to wander around and steal people's stuff. It brings about a little death to present to prevent the bigger death of people having all their stuff stolen. Or if there's someone who's going around murdering people, that person is locked up in prison for life or even is executed. The state has that authority to bring someone to, to death for capital crimes. They are put to death so that more deaths don't occur at that person's hands. Or the state has the authority of the sword to go into war. This is the Christian understanding of just war theory, that the state can go and defend itself. And why does it do that? It goes marching off to war to bring death to the enemy, to prevent the enemy from destroying the whole nation. So the state has the authority to bring about a little death to prevent a bigger death. The picture that 
that's used to describe this is the picture of like grain, gangrene or frostbite. Let's say you get like gangrene on your finger because you're hiking up Everest or the Mount of Olives or whatever. And you're so freezing cold that your finger dies, you know, the blood freezes and, and now the flesh is dead. And this is what happens when that, ha when that occurs is that, that that death starts to spread. And it'll spread down your fingers to your hand and down your hand to your arm until eventually your whole body will die if it's not checked. And so the only thing to do is to amputate. You get a sword or a knife or whatever. I don't actually know what they use to amputate these days. In fact, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't really want to know. But they bring some sort of something <laughs> to cut off the part of the body that's dying. And, and you got to think that if you're the part that's being cut off, you're not too pleased to see that knife. But if you're the rest of the body, you are. Well, that's the picture of the sword. The sword brings a little bit of death to the, to the finger with gangrene to prevent the whole body from dying. So that's the role of the state, those three estates. And we are living in all of them. We have different vocations and callings in all of them. According to the three estates, I'm the son of... Chuck and Alinda, I'm the brother of Philip and Thomas, I'm the husband of Carrie, I'm the father of Hannah and Andrew and Daniel and Isaac, I've, I have cousins and nephews and nieces and, and in-laws, I, I belong to them according to the estate of the family. And according to the church, I'm the pastor of Hope, of St. Paul Lutheran and of, of Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church, and the privilege of serving as pastor of Hope Lutheran Church. 14 years and the and and I'm so I serve as a pastor in the church I have people in authority over me and I have the congregation that I serve and bless with the Lord's Word and according to the state I'm an American citizen I'm a citizen of Texas I think officially we got our driver's license I live in Round Rock Texas and work in Austin and so I have different city council people who I have elected or who were elected <laughs> and they are serving in government over me and this sort of thing so I have a place in all of these estates and I have different roles and different vocations in all of them now one of the one of the most helpful things it may it might finish the conversation here because but one of the most things about thinking with the three estates as our background and pattern and this, by the way, you can see all over in, in the thinking of the Reformation. So, so for example, for example, when, when Luther was asked to evaluate Islam, he evaluated according to the three estates. He says, what does Islam say about Christ, and how does that affect the church? And then he says, what does Islam say about marriage, and how does that affect the family? And then he says, what does Islam say about the state? And how people are to be ruled. In other words, that he his mind was simply shaped according to these things. Now that is so helpful. That should be us too. And we should realize then that that the obsession that we see, for example, with all things political, is three. Uh, the the thinking of the three estates lets us put it in in perspective. You know, we watch the news, we watch the 9 o'clock or the 10 o'clock or the news hour, or we listen to national news or whatever it is, and it's all the political stuff. But if we're thinking according to the three estates, we should know that if things are good in the church and things are good in the home, then the things 
can be pretty bad in the state, and I'm still going to be okay. But things could be going great politically, but if things are bad in the preaching at church and things are bad in the conversations at home, then things are just going to be bad. It lets us, in other words, it lets us have a a kind of a, a system to prioritize our lives and to know that that even though the state is so blustery and trying to trying to make itself the most important of all of the estates, we realize that it's actually the least important of all. And that our chief attention is to be given to the to the home uh, and to the church. That's where we live. Well, I want to finish talking about that, but I'm looking at the clock, and we don't have enough to start another topic. So let me give you a, an example. If you go, by the way, if you want to read more about this, here's my suggestion. If you go to wolfmuller.co, this is the website we got cooking over here, wolfmuller.co slash three estates, one word, three estates. Or if you just go to wolfmuller.co and search for three estates, you will find a, a post called Thinking Like a Lutheran, the three estates quotation collection post. And in this post, there's just a slight, a small introduction by me. But then what we see is a, 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 a just a, about five or ten pages of quotations from Martin Luther about the three estates. Uh, and, and that is really what we, what we want to see. So here's one. This is concerning the great confession, concerning the Lord's Supper. And Luther writes this. He says, oh, wait, did it go? I saw the two-minute warning. I better read fast. But the holy orders and true religious institutions established by God are these three. The office of priest, the estate of marriage, and civil government. All who are engaged in the clerical office or ministry of the word are in a holy, proper, good, and God-pleasing order and estate such as those who preach, administer the sacraments, supervise the common chest, sextants and messengers or servants who serve such persons, these are engaged in works which are altogether holy in God's sight. Again, all fathers and mothers who regulate their household wisely and bring up their children to the service of God and are engaged in, are engaged in pure holiness, in a holy work and a holy order, Similarly, when children and servants show obedience to their elders and masters, here too is pure holiness, and whoever is thus engaged is a living saint on earth. Moreover, princes and lords, judges, civil officers, state officials, notaries, male and female servants, and all who serve such persons, and further, all their obedient subjects are all engaged in pure holiness and leading a holy life before God. These three religious institutions are found in God's word and command. So God be praised for it. And I hope this is helpful for your own thinking, that the Lord has put you in the church and the family and the state to give you life and life eternal. And thanks for listening to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We'll be back to talk about more of this kind of stuff next week. Stay tuned for that. God's peace be with you. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.
you stayed to the end. That's really, well, that's actually, that's an honor that you're, that you're here at the end with me. God be praised. I hope, I hope that meant that this was helpful to you. I'd love to hear from you, by the way. The easiest way to get a hold of me is at the website, wolfmuller.co. There's a contact button. Uh, you can click on that. And those emails come straight to me. I read, all, I read them all. Uh, if you have something that you'd love to have talked about, have any questions for me, let me know. There's also a lot of other theology there at the website, wolfmuller.co. And if this show was helpful to you, the stuff we talked about you thought was helpful and engaging to your Christian mind and imagination, if, if there's someone else that you think would benefit by it, if you could share it with them, that's wonderful. That's how news gets around, and that's how this fun spreads. So may God grant you his joy and his peace in believing and knowing his goodness and glory. And until next week, God's peace be with you.